Good morning, everyone. Um, Would you join me as we continue to worship, as we pray before the reading of God's word? Guide us, O God, that by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light. In your truth, find true freedom. And in your will, discover your true peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Deuteronomy. We'll be reading chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. You can turn to page 141 on the, in the Pew Bible. If you found the word, please stand with me. Hear now the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. I want to start by giving us a short, brief history of youth ministry. You might be wondering why, but let me just begin. Way back in the 40s, a gentleman by the name of Jim Rayburn began a parachurch ministry to reach teens in local high schools. Eventually, this became what is now known as Young Life, with this mission to introduce adolescents to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their faith. Their strategy was pretty simple in a a way. They wanted to have caring adults build genuine friendship with the teens and thus earn the right to be heard. Around the same time, another group by the name of Youth for Christ began holding these large rallies in the United States, in Canada, in England, and became this national movement but ended up turning to Bible clubs in the late 50s and 60s, shifting from proclamation of uh, the gospel and evangelism focus to more of a relational evangelism to unchurched youth. By the time we come to 1970s, churches begin or began to realize, well, we need to get in this, And they began hiring youth pastors. And some of them actually were former members of Young Life or Youth for Christ. And in the 70s, youth pastors began to employ this kind of attractional model where they use food, they use music, live music, and create this kind of a vibrant youth uh, environment. And churches began to... excuse me, realized, well, when you have vibrant youth groups, more families tended to come. So encourage even more attractional-oriented programs. 
Sounds vaguely familiar, perhaps to some of us. And by the uh, 80s, most of us probably, well, some of us are probably familiar with MTV or media-driven generation of that youth culture, but more entertainment came into youth ministry and placed this kind of an inordinate pressure for youth pastors to gather more youth with these more exciting programs. And around this time is when colleges, Christian colleges and seminaries began offering classes, programs for youth ministry. Eventually, now you have degrees and specializations and more. There are many impacts of this kind of a focused youth ministry in our church. just want to highlight two parts. One is the structural and relational change that this fostered in local churches. When youth or adolescent began coming together and began to have this youth rooms, youth church, they began to be separated from the larger congregation that they were always intended for. And this wasn't just obviously in large churches. For many of us who grew up in the church, you probably experienced something very similar from children's church to youth church where you have your own room and worshiping separately. But as these shifts of structural space and relational changes began to occur, you had another change of expectation before for the parents, actually. Parents began to come to church, drop off their kids, and then they went to their service. What was once understood and accepted as both the duty and right that parents are supposed to, that the fathers are supposed to lead in raising children spiritually, now you have these professionally trained children's director, professionally trained youth director, who often were just starting their seminary days. And just because they started or they enrolled in seminary and might not even have started taking a class, the church put this inordinate pressure. Now you are the specialist. Lead these kids. Nurture these kids. And a lot of them, including myself, when I started youth ministry at age 24, 25, I had no idea what I was doing. I just signed up for a class that's going to start soon. This God-given duty and responsibility for teaching and training one's children for the parents was shifted by these highly energetic so-called professional workers. During Ash Wednesday service, Pastor Eugene reminded us how gracious God has been in bringing us so far. It's been over six years, and as I look back to where we started and where we are now, I'm also humbled and just full of thanksgiving. Because when we started, many of us, we also thought, well, it's the church's primary duty to teach the kids. The first generation, some of us who have first generation parents who didn't speak English or didn't grow up here, that excuse of language and culture, 
that quote-unquote excuse them to kind of forfeit their spiritual responsibility. Yet this was prevalent, whether it was an immigrant church or not, throughout the United States since the 70s and on. It just escalated more and more and became more prevalent and normative, unfortunately. Many parents thought that, you know what, my main responsibility is to provide for the welfare of my kids physically, educationally, financially, but, but spiritually, in terms of teaching what the Bible, you know what, that's, that's on the youth pastor, youth director, or the children's pastor, children's director. God has been gracious to us because he's been chipping away that, so against that kind of secularizing mentality that's been seeping through the church for the past decade, excuse me, um, century. This sort of overly professionalization, shifting of responsibility, divine mandate that God has given to the parents that's been more and more shifting to the professionals, others who are not the parents, we've seen throughout. Yet God's been gracious, teaching us, forming us, conforming us to the word so that we actually take that burden that we were meant to carry as parents in this generation. Bringing us back to the Bible. Back to what the Bible is teaching. That what the Bible has been teaching for thousands of years. That it is God who gave us the rights and duties to parent these children that he has entrusted to us for the time being. And yes, that it's the parents who receive this main responsibility of bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That the church is not given this primary task, but that the parents are given. The sad state of our nation is that the government thinks otherwise, and the right and the responsibility that God has given is trying to take away and also, as we reflect back, to see the way we have ceded, given up our rights and responsibility. It's been under attack for a long time. Secularism and its worldview. It won't tolerate this sort of biblical worldview. And we've seen this more and more in the past couple of years. That God is the creator of all things. That God is the one who created marriage. That he's the one who gave the right and the responsibility to the parents to um, discipline and instruct the kids in the ways of the Lord. And it's this push of the secular worldview that continues to eat away or tries to eat away the role of the parents in the way that we've been entrusted to bring up our children. I mean, you turn on the news. What was once something we saw in Europe, perhaps something that we saw in the continent of Europe to Canada, we see now more and more, case after case, 
story after story, hear parental rights being downgraded and try to be removed from parents when parents go against the secularism of today, this, especially in this arena of transgender movement and its ideology. Whether from the governmental level of the local um, towns that we live in to the state and now the federal government, at various levels, people who have bought into this ideology with their own God of, you know, what, whatever they prioritize, they're attacking parental God-given rights to the parents. It's almost like you wonder, are we living in Soviet Union or North Korea with this kind of a totalitarian regime telling us who owns the kids? Kind of a 19... Um, 84-esque novel as if it's being played out. We are reminded again that God's word is more important than ever. And at the same time, we also recognize that there's nothing new under the sun. Because you see, the idolatrous forces that Israelites faced as they were about to enter the promised land from the passage we read are not that different from the idolatrous state of the New Testament time or the time today. The gods, the idols, and the ideology of the land always seek supremacy, trying to dethrone the sovereign God who is the only one worthy of worship. When you look at chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, it begins with these two verses where Moses is actually speaking to the Israelites with his final sermon. Deuteronomy 2nd Nami coming with the word uh, law. So it's the second teaching of the law. Essentially, the first generation of Israelites are not going to enter the promised land. Now it's the new batch as they're about to enter. Um, This is from verse 1 and 2. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going going over to possess. So we see Moses has two goals. He wants to teach them the truth, teach them with what God has given them, and he wants them to live out this truth. There is this knowledge that they need to gain, and there's the living out that they need to fulfill. And in verse 2, it continues, that you may fear the Lord your God, you, your son, and your son's son. Moses has in mind this kind of a passing of baton that's happening from the first and the second. And he knows what awaits the next baton passing of faith to come. And he longs and he knows that God wants the child and their child and the future children to know the way of the Lord and walk in the fear of the Lord. Central to biblical theology that affirms the oneness of God is known in Hebrew as the Shema. It means hear, and then it goes, hear, O Israel, what I just read. It's reminding them to set the, well, the Shema is calling them to be set apart from all the other nations that are going to surround them as they're about to enter the Canaan land. 
They know that the land that they're going to dwell in is going to have all other gods, and they're going to be challenged. They're going to they're be called, commanded to drive them out because their hearts are going to be pulled away from the one and only God. Israelites will be tempted again and again to adopt the pagan idols, cultures. Nothing new here today either. But instead to worship the true creator who alone is worthy to be praised. He alone is God, one God. Deuteronomy 6.5 continues by um, following through verse 4, that we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and might, that no one else is worthy of such affection, although everything else will compete for this sort of total surrender. It reminds us that our motivation for obeying God has to be love with all that we have. Parents, soon-to-be parents, singles who are waiting to become married and eventually have family and kids, the main thing that God teaches us here is that as parents with the spiritual responsibility, we are to diligently teach. Diligently teach the things of God in every moment. When you sit in your house, walk by the way, when you lie down or rise, we are to be always thinking about the word, meditating day and night as the psalmist in Psalm 1, that we are to teach our kids, instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Not just talk about or pray before a meal, but intentionally prioritizing, taking advantage of situations where it would be perfect to have a teaching moment, to come back to the Word. When kids are sinning in a certain way, when they are succeeding in a certain way, how do we give glory to God, how we humble ourselves and confess our sins? When kids come back, whether in elementary or middle school, and hear things that are clearly against the word, taking that chance, that, that opportunity as a teaching moment to ground them back to the word of God. This means that we, as parents, <clears throat> need to be attentive to the spiritual condition of our kids. That we're cognizant of what they're struggling with, what they're being exposed to, what they're wrestling with. That means we need to have conversations at whatever level of life stage they might be at. Yes, as parents, naturally, and this is the easy thing to do, we worry about their friends, we are concerned with their social interaction amongst their peers. We think about the sports that they, we want them to participate in so that they'll be physically healthy. We think about their school, about academics. Yet how much do we think, plan, invest in their spiritual maturity, in their immortal soul, that they, like us, totally depraved and need to repent, 
to receive the gospel of salvation, and they also need to be sanctified. Parents, we are to instruct our children in the great subjects of salvation, and now, probably more than ever, the biblical views of marriage, sex. Because one thing, if you're not teaching someone else's, someone else is always trying to convert them to their ideologies, just as the Israelites are going to be tempted and attacked by the cultural ideologies of their days, we're not immune to that. So parents, talk to your kids after church when you go home about, for those who are old enough to go to children's ministry, what did you learn today? How do we apply that? Talk to your kids about the scripture that they are memorizing in children's ministry, songs they're singing, and maybe even ask how they're doing, the temptations that they might be wrestling with, and the fears that they have, and how do we allow the gospel truth to be applied in their life stage? But in order for us to do that, parents, we need to be a disciple ourselves. We need to be doing what Moses is teaching and calling the people to obey for. We need to be disciples living that example life, exemplary life, so that our priority and the choices that our kids see reflect more and more the priorities of the Scripture. You know, we've been going through the Ten Commandments now. We've been on the Fourth Commandment for a while. And even as simple as this, how serious are we in teaching our kids about how we remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? The attitude of preparing the Sabbath throughout the week, what do we do? How do we get ready for Sunday, the Lord's Day? How do we come here? And even when we are here, how do we honor the Lord? Do we give full attention that God deserves? How do we sit? How do we speak? What are the things that we permit? What are the things that we discourage? Because we truly believe it honors God and is good for us. Or do our lives, especially when we are not here, on the Lord's Day, reflect that we are pretty much taken up and consumed by our work, our pursuit of pleasure and entertainment, our downtime, or even our desire to escape from pain. Kids, kids see. I think some of us growing up, we saw that kind of juxtaposition or perhaps the hypocrisy in our parents. But right now, we're called to be, and we're going to be held responsible for what we do with our life before the Lord. What parents did, your parents did, they're going to be held accountable. Now it's about us being accountable to what God expects from us. Parents, Love the Lord your God. And the best way to start, as we remind every, every week, study the word. Grow greater in the love for God's word. Be like that psalmist in Psalm 1. Planting yourself streams of water. 
meditating on the word day and night. You know, when I think about the Israelites, they're pretty amazing in that one of the few groups of people who've been commanded by God to know how to read and write. And when you study church history, whenever the word of God went to anywhere, one of the main things that they did was they translated the Bible, and if that culture or ethnic group did not have a reading and writing system, they created a writing system so that they could read and write and teach their kids. We need to be reading and writing, studying, meditating on the word, teaching our children. So parents, what better way for us than to study God's word, meditating it day and night? Christian Smith, this is a bit way back, a little less than 20 years ago, published a book titled Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. It was uh, conducted by National Study of Youth and Religion, and behold, um, it, it, found, it discovered that parents have the greatest role and ability in impacting their child's spiritual development. Surprise. Um, he writes, parents for whom religious faith is quite important are thus likely to be raising teenagers for whom faith is quite important, while parents whose faith is not important are likely to be raising teenagers for whom faith is also not important. The fit is not perfect. None of this is guaranteed or determined, and sometimes in specific instances, things turn out otherwise. But the overall positive association is clear. And no surprise here either, right? Around the same time, Barna also did some research, and according to their uh, survey and research, um, stated that parents typically have no plan for the spiritual development of their children. Do not consider it a priority, have little or no training in how to nurture a child's faith, have no uh, related standards or goals that they are seeking to satisfy, and experience no accountability for their effort. I have to confess, though, I think um, church has been complicit in continuing this kind of uh, relational dynamic. There's a pressure for um, people to come, send their kids with kids, come with the kids, and the temptation and the pressure to be the one providing instead of what? Church's role as equipping the saints to do the ministry. So church's main role is to actually equip the parents to receive and acknowledge the primary spiritual responsibility in teaching and raising their children. But instead, church took that over and gave those roles and responsibility to children's director, youth directors, and thus going against God's teaching, good intention, but usually not enough. And for those of you guys who are single, the best thing for you to do, as we remind all God's saints, regardless of your life stages, also to grow in the truth of God's word. And don't be lazy. Study God's word. Be the guy who can lead his family spiritually now. Don't wait till you get married. Be that man who can follow Christ well and be able to lead others to Christ. And if you're a single lady, continue to be 
studying, reading God's Word, like you've been doing, like you, some of you guys came Saturday morning, you've been reading together, you've been thinking, asking, engaging each other, challenging one another in God's Word. Continue to meditate, study it. And if you're single and you are wondering, waiting, look for the kind of guy who is passionate about loving God, who is passionate about studying God's Word, a guy who can, what, follow Christ well now, and you see hints of them leading others to Christ because it only gets harder when you get married, when there's more expectation, more pressure, more responsibilities. You can't stay neutral. It's either you're drifting down the current into secularism because all these ideologies and gods of our time will seek to be worshipped, or you're going to be working hard, swimming up to what is true. You can't just stay still. I want to go to Ephesians 6.4. Now, this is after Apostle Paul calls t- uh, children to obey their parents, honor your father and mother in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 4, he goes, fathers, he's pointing out the fathers now, fathers, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He has a negative command, and he has a positive command. On the negative side, fathers are not to parent in a way to provoke their kids to be angry, but what? Exercise restraint, wisdom, and encourage the kids to righteousness. On the flip side, on the positive, they are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The command, is, the command to lead a family is for the whole parents, husband and wife, but primarily the spiritual responsibility is laid on the father. Just as when Adam and Eve were, when God called Adam, it was after Eve sinned first and Adam followed. Who was held accountable? Who was held responsible? It was Adam, not Eve, because he's the head of the family. This call, this duty, for the fathers to not to exasperate their children, to teach and lead them in the ways of the Lord, the burden is on him. The world, however, keeps on attempting to undermine parental authority. And we're reminded that it's God who gave government has no right to actually ability to take away because it's God who gave. It's only God who's, who has that power. If you live during Roman time, as Paul's writing this letter, fathers actually had a pretty crazy amount of authority. Um, children were often considered as part of his possessions, and they were often tempted to abuse that kind of authority. And Many or some definitely abused it regularly. Back in those days, boys were preferred over girls, so often girls were kind of exposed and left to die outside in the street. Pretty common practice, which Christians bravely challenged, and they rescued these children who were being exposed to death and brought them up in loving Christian home. So when Ephesians 6.4 is challenging, charging Fathers, do not provoke your ch- children to anger. There's this um, 
challenge against the culture for fathers in the Roman context to go crazy with their authority. And it goes to limit this Roman impulse towards parental tyranny, especially from the fathers. I think in our day and age, the temptation of us fathers is we tend to become a little more passive. Mothers become more active. We need both. But fathers often think as long as we're providing financially, physically, we've met our requirement. And this temptation for fathers to cede their responsibility, this tendency toward passivity is what unfortunately we have seen in the church for decades. But it's the fathers who will be held account to an account before God. It will be the husbands who will be held accountable for your family, just as elders of the church will be held accountable for the church. We correct them for their best interest, glory of God, not because we are personally frustrated. I think the sinful side of me can and has done that. And uh, there are times when we have to own up when we sin and confess to God and say sorry to our children because they see whether we are being hypocritical, or truly who we say we believe actually matches with our lifestyle. This is something that I've I've wrestled with. I'm still learning as my kids are getting older, making rules and expectations clear and reasonable. And as a side plug, I want to encourage you to, if you haven't already listened to, I think, episode 131, Pastor Eugene was talking about, um, I think, one of the books by Doug Wilson and giving some really practical, wise uh, suggestions in coming up with rules, following up with the consequences. So if you haven't, please take a listen. So how, how, shall, how should we rear our children? The answer is in the language of the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You have the first, which is uh, training by dis- uh, discipline which can also include punishment, and the second, which is the instruction part, the verbal education, teaching. Um, Whenever we have a a baptism of an infant, Pastor Eugene usually has uh, parents stand up, and this is one of the questions that he asks. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before them a godly example, that you will pray with and for them, that you will teach them the doctrine of the holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And all parents who are here say, I do. The first part, do you unreservedly, now unreservedly, dedicate your child to God? It echoes the language of dedicating your firstborn in the Old Testament. That as we're presenting our children to God, we recognize that they're not ours, they belong to God. And at best, we're temporarily stewarding this that he has entrusted us. 
And it continues by saying, um, and in promise and humble reliance upon divine grace, we are reminded that it all depends on God's grace because even our best effort always depends on God's grace. And sometimes it doesn't go our way. And we're humbly reminded as we continue to pray for our covenant family, children, and members that it's truly by God's sovereign grace that if any one of us are saved, we're saved at all. You can imagine Adam and Eve in their confusion, doing their best to raise their kids and seeing the way Cain and Abel turn up and that disastrous, sinful day when jealousy leads to death. We are to continue to trust in the Lord and depend on God's grace. And the four things that you promise to do. You parents with your kids who were baptized, these are the things, these are the four things you promise to do. That what? That you set yourself as a godly example. That you pray with them and for them, that you teach them the doctrines of our holy religion. And that you what? Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. These four things really captures the meaning of what it means to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents, fathers especially, or all of us who should be aspiring to become a father for those men here, are we living out what we believe? Are we praying with people around us? Are we excited to teach the truth? Or is it just a burden that you want to avoid? The greatest test is this. When it's inconvenient and when you're tired, do you tend toward a less skip or do you tend to lean, you know what, this is important. We got to do this. That's a true test. And that reveals your conviction in your heart when it's hard. And do we continue to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Parenting in the 21st century has this weird tendency for kind of a laissez-faire permissiveness. It rejects God's command for the parents to teach God's way. That's what it is. And when we say we want our children to find their way, instead of teaching them the truth, that's simply denying that our children, not any different from us, if left to our own devices, will not find their way to God, but in fact will be the opposite end. Because we are all totally, radically depraved. Men, the world will continue to push us call us toxic in the way we are seeking to honor God, God's command, leading our families. But the gods of the Israelites' time and the gods of New Testament time not really different than gods of today, the ideologies that will not compete 
against the Lord God who is one. We can't be lazy about loving God. We must be diligent. We must be committed. We must be like that tree planted by the fountain of life, the word of God. We must be meditating day and night so that we can call our children to also feast on that and be meditating it day and night. Men, single men especially, I want to charge you, follow Christ fully, not just little. Commit yourself unto the Lord fully so that when the Lord blesses you with a family, you will be able to lead your wife and your children. Husbands, we must love our wives. And there's no better way to love than by leading our wives spiritually in his word and in prayer. Husbands, if you are not already doing, lead your family in family worship. And fathers, no matter how young your child might be, it's never too early to start. Spend time thinking, praying about what your child right now needs, how they need to grow in the ways of the Lord, and be committed to thinking, planning, investing, time, energy, and resource to take on that right and the duty that God has given us. Accept, no, embrace the duty and the right God has given for you as the head of your family. Accept this holy duty in bringing up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Remember, you made the vows, so keep it. Live it out. You know, I thank and I'm always thankful for our children's ministry teachers and our youth group teachers. They're awesome. But they're meant to supplement what you're doing at home. Remember, it's your job. The gods of secularism today are coming after our kids, and we cannot remain passive. We cannot remain silent. I think this came out a little less than two years ago, and um, June of 2021, I think, when San Francisco Gay Men's Choir aired this kind of a Broadway-esque ballad in support of Pride Month titled, We Are Coming for Your Children. And the soloist, one of the soloists, cheerfully sharing the message to everyone who's against the whole LGBTQ plus equal rights, saying, they are coming to convert your children. And rightly, people are flipping out and, and to that response, the choir assured everyone, you know, it's just a joke. Take it easy. It's just a misunderstanding. But sure, yeah, they were just joking. They just sang about these things that they're coming after our kids and also us. Because I think if we pay attention to anything in the past two years, we've clearly seen the way they're coming after our kids and us. It wasn't a joke, and it was never a joke. Because the ideologies, the idols are at that time do not want to be competed against by the Lord God who says he is the only one worthy of worship. So let's heed God's command. Let's embrace the duty to be godly example, to pray with our kids and for them. Let's teach them the truth. 
teach them the truth of the gospel and the doctrines that they need to hear. And let's bring them up in the nurture and admission of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, during this season of Lent, Lord, help us to continue maturing as your sons and daughters, growing in a greater love for you, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would increase in us a greater hunger for your word because man cannot live by bread alone. We know that crystal clearly. So as we lead our families, as we seek to mature in our singleness, that we rightly recognize the duty you have given, and we do so with holy fear, seeking your glory, trusting that you're working out all things for our good. So Lord, have your way with us, and in Christ's name, we pray. Let's continue in our silent meditation before the Lord as we examine our hearts. How am I growing in my love for the Lord, in my commitment to study His Word, and for those of us who are married, leading our families, those who have children, teaching our kids.